0: That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Jonathan Goldsby, CanadaLand's news
1: editor, meticulous fordologist, co-host of Wag the Dog. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. It's my first time on since uh, the Young Street van attack. So, hi. Jonathan, today we're going to talk about the government-funded mental hygiene campaign
0: promoting real news. <sighs> not this kind of thing we're doing here. And a master class on the art of storytelling. Your setting is Ontario during a global pandemic. Your protagonist, Doug Ford. Begin. Glad to have you back.
1: Glad to be back. And in preparation for the first segment in particular, I've assembled the soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly wait.
0: This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts was brought to everyone by Martha Maznevsky, Devin Wiles, Thomas Hawk, Patrick Reed, Megan McLaren, Nicole Royal, Dean Davis, and Roland Tanner. My name's Roland Tanner and I'm a publisher in Burlington, Ontario. I support Canada Land because it provides news and insight I simply don't hear anywhere else and has shown a new way for Canadian independent media to be viable. Canada Land inspired a friend of me to set up our own podcast called The 905er in July, dedicated to news and politics and discussion in Ontario's growing 905 region. It's a region of 4 million people with hardly any news coverage of its own. It's our deeply held hope that one day we too will be called Icky by Terry Maleski. Jonathan, did you read uh, Leslyn Lewis's piece? The uh, failed candidate for the conservative leadership, Leslyn Lewis, she had a piece in the National Post last week. No, I, I haven't read it. The headline read, There is a socialist coup unfolding in Canada and we taxpayers are funding it. Hmm. I can't resist. uh, And since you did miss it, I'm going to, I'm going to just
1: pluck out some highlights, if I may. I mean, I can guess what it says. What would you guess? What is the socialist coup? Uh, What could the socialist coup be? I don't know. Does that have to do with cancel culture? It has nothing to do with cancel culture. Oh, okay. I'll take you through it a little bit
0: here. Justin Trudeau tried to grant himself king-like powers. He has stated clearly that he wants Canada to be a post-national country. He is perceived as an evangelical for a new type of 21st century socialism, a quiet and bloodless revolution oh my God. that seeks to control our lives through economic dependency. There is no need under this socialist revolution uh, to confiscate your property. They can simply redistribute your wealth. Many Canadians rightly fear the repercussions of Trudeau transforming Canada into a cashless society. They have told me that they are afraid the liberals will impose a social credit score similar to the one that exists in China, where people's behaviors are monitored through 5G cameras. For this reason, they also distrust the COVID alert app. Canadians rightly fear that this authoritarian socialist agenda will be so insidious there will be no need to throw dissenters in jail because new societal protocols can be put in place and those who fail to obey the ever-changing societal norms can simply be fined or jailed uh, for minor infractions. It is far more paranoid, nonsensical, uh, idiotic. Uh, I, I actually was intrigued by Lester Lewis who, who you know, uh, really uh, outperformed a lot of people's expectations in the conservative leadership race. I did want to bring up this piece in the Post um, Both because, my God, but also just because it's so interesting, Jonathan, that that Mm -hmm. ran last week on October 2nd in the National Post, the flagship newspaper of the largest newspaper chain in Canada. Three days later, the prime minister tweets this. Newspapers play a critical role in protecting our democracy and keeping us informed. And with this pandemic, we need credible and reliable information more than ever. So this hashtag national newspaper week, we're especially grateful for newspapers and the people behind them. Thank you. Now, you know, I can cherry pick some awful thing from a newspaper and then contrast that with Justin Trudeau advocating for newspapers, like not, not for good journalism or for the, or for the news industry, but like specifically like medium specific newspapers. And maybe that's a fallacious kind of a juxtaposition, but it, but it, you know, it does seem like, you know, the Post is very frequently running similar stuff, uh, be it Rex Murphy, Conrad Black, that, you know, Jonathan, like, we wouldn't publish that Less Than Lewis piece or some, you know, progressive equivalent of that, right? Like, like that wouldn't meet our standards. So it's interesting to me that the prime minister is, is, is advocating for this National Newspaper Week thing.
1: So I've created a soundboard of various sighs and reaction responses in preparation. That one is called sigh two. That's sigh one. Oh, you actually did this. There's also a really and a seriously, and finally a. Is that actually the argument you're making? So this is, <laughs> and that was an actual sigh. That's, I guess. Okay. So let's let's look at this Trudeau tweet. <laughs> You know, it's it's inane, it's anodyne, it's whatever, but it's it seems as meaningless and inoffensive as wishing people a happy Rosh Hashanah. Newspapers play a critical role in protecting our democracy and keeping us informed. I would say that's true. I don't think it literally means print newspapers, but even if it did, I would think that's a, a fair and accurate statement. Next sentence. And with this pandemic, we need credible and reliable information more than ever. I think we'd sure. agree with that. So mm-hmm. this hashtag National Newspaper Week, it's a stupid hashtag, whatever. But I mean, it's not like it's being used for any weird purpose either, in context or in general. So this National Newspaper Week, we're especially grateful for newspapers and the people behind them. Thank you. I mean, I'm, I mean it, it depends on if you mean the people behind them. Are you talking about you know, Paul Godfrey or Andrew McLeod, are you talking about the journalists? But I think if you choose to be reasonably charitable and actually assume he's talking about the people who put the damn things together, then I think that's fair enough. Is it, is National Newspaper Week a real thing? Not re- I mean, no. I mean, what, like how many weeks are, re- are or are not real things? <laughs> it's just, it just seems like so No, I mean, why get mad about g- this? I, I hear you. I mean, you know- It's you, just you- not a- it's not a thing. It's, it's not it's, a thing. It's, it's a
0: momentary eye roll at best. Just based on Justin Trudeau's tweet, it's just some nice, pretty words about newspapers that really I actually probably agree with, right? I mean, why make, why make this the lead topic of our program this I week? I was
1: certainly wondering that, hence preparing the soundboard. I was just curious
0: why Justin Trudeau was hashtagging this National Newspaper Week. And what is this National Newspaper Week? Is this sort of an ad hoc thing? It, it actually, in the Canadian iteration, is run by a group called News Media Canada. News Media Canada is an organization that, uh, by its own description of itself, is the voice of Canada's news media industry, representing hundreds of print and digital titles. Its own description of itself is a lie. They're actually a newspaper newspaper lobby group that used to be called Newspapers Canada. And most digital news sites don't want anything to do with them, largely because when they go and actually um, advocate for the news industry, they give priority and primacy to newspapers. And if you are running a digital news site and you're seeking subscriptions, you are in competition with newspapers. So for your representative, your lobby group to be saying, it's the newspapers that we're doing this week for, it's the newspapers that we're supporting everyone else, you're not being well represented. So this really is, a newspaper lobby group calling itself a digital uh, representative. They're handling National Newspaper Week in Canada. And when Justin Trudeau advocates for National Newspaper Week, it's not simply the prime minister saying, hey, newspapers are great for democracy. And even though they criticize me, and even though Lesson Lewis thinks that I'm some kind of a tyrant, I'm going to say nice things about newspapers. In fact, he's representing the government that paid for National Newspaper Week. I asked John Hines, the president and CEO of News Media Canada, who confirmed to me that the heritage ministry has paid a quarter of a million dollars to fund this campaign. This campaign is running throughout newspapers and elsewhere. And um, you can see that there's a full page ad in a lot of newspapers across the, the country. And the headline reads, we wish 2020 was fake news too. champion the truth. Happy newspaper week. What's written in the negative space of this? You know, it's like we need credible and reliable information more than ever. I mean, as opposed to the other kind, right? In this scary pandemic time, Mm. we need the credible stuff. And the credible stuff is associated with the newspapers here. It's the newspapers that we're grateful for in our quest for this credible and reliable information, not the fake news. Fake news keeps getting invoked. So there's this establishment of these buckets of information, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And I don't know, where do you think we are? Which bucket do you think this puts us in? And a lot of other news organizations. As you pointed out just before we sat down here today, the CBC is also a part of this campaign. And the CBC just published an index, a local journalism finder, a list of like what local journalism outlet. Here, we're the CBC and we do local news, but we're going to support the other local news outlets that you can, you know, and you should support them too, because they do good journalism, says the CBC. And you can look up your city. If you look up Calgary, you have two choices The Herald or The Sun. They're both post media papers. The Sprawl which is a great local uh, journalism pop-up in, in Calgary, it's not on there. If you look up Halifax, Tim Bousquet's Halifax Examiner isn't there. If you look up Hamilton, Joey Coleman's public record isn't on there. If you look up Vancouver, The Breaker isn't on there. Kukukwes out in Atlantic Canada, the indigenous news site, it's not on there. So there is a consolidation here of like the, the kind of uh, mainstream information sources and, it's, it, and it extends from the prime minister's office, the heritage ministry, the newspaper lobby group, CBC, and some people are in it, and some people are not in it. Jesse. Yes. Is that actually the argument you're making? That is actually the argument that I'm making.
1: Really? Really. Seriously? I'm dead serious. <sighs> <laughs> this thing's coming in useful. It's <laughs> very handy. Um, okay, so if we, if we work backwards through this... If we work, yeah. back, If we work backwards through your arguments the directory on the CBC the CBC corporate website for whatever that distinction may be worth there's the CBC website there's the Radio Canada website what is that distinction worth to the public reader well the practical implication is no one will ever see this thing they mm-hmm. have the CBC Radio Canada is the corporate site the directory is a it strikes me as more just silly than anything else. No one will ever look at it again past today. No one will ever. Maybe a few people will ever stumble across it. It probably took one person maybe three days to compile and post. It's whatever. Uh, stepping back, another thing that the. The money they got from the government, presuming it's like the, their campaigns in the past years, you can just go on the you know the government's website and see that you know the money came from the Canadian Periodical Fund, which has a specific funding program, collective initiatives that that is to say specifically for industry advocacy. Now, I mean, yes, there, there you can definitely argue there's something circular. There could potentially be something circular if you look at it as the government funding industry advocacy back to the, the back to the government. But if you were to take at least take the ads at face value and assume that they're directed at the public at large. Is it an effective ad? Is it a good ad? No, it's stupid. It's clunky. It's, it's as clunky as pretty much any industry association advertisement. They're very seldom uh, clever, smart, good, or even that makes sensible. Go. Going back one more step, I mean, you've, you've certainly spoken about and occasionally with News Media Canada and formerly Newspapers Canada many, many, many times on this show and on the Monday show. If it were more broadly representative of a range of types of media outlets. Would you approve of it more? Clearly you feel they're being misrepresentative or they're they're misrepresenting themselves by calling them News Media Canada. But I guess I wonder if they did try to represent your interest or if they did try to find some sort of consensus among all the various planks of the industry, do you think you would like it any more?
0: I mean it's not the point whether I like it or not. I mean there's nothing wrong with with a lobby group to advocate for an industry. That's not the problem here at all. That there's a, you know, a group that's trying to do
1: things for its members. I mean every industry has that. There's no problem with that. But it always seems to just rub you the wrong way as though there's a very specific annoyance there that may or may not stem from a specific incident or wound. (laughs) What is it?
0: And I I think you've hit on something, first of all, that is that is a problem in my critique, which is like, you know, my interest as a business owner, you know, is is something that needs to be Separated like that's not really what I'm trying to um, to express here, but it's a fact, uh, and it it is like a practical conflict of interest that I can only disclose. Mm -hmm. What I'm actually getting at here has very little to do with whether they include Canada Land or other digital news sites. What we see here are uh, a number of kind of vectors of communication and power. They might not be exerting their power Mm -hmm. very effectively, but you know the prime minister's office is pretty Mm -hmm. powerful. The mainstream media in Canada is pretty powerful. The CBC is pretty powerful, and uh, there's an alignment of messaging and there's an alignment of interests and they're all sort of saying the same thing and they are establishing categories at a time when the news media elsewhere is just like actually involved in a day-to-day struggle for like we kind of know from a business perspective, what news organizations need to do if they're going to make it through this. And that is they need paid subscription. Mm. So what we're doing here and what, you know, the New York Times is doing and what any news outfit uh, in pretty much the entire Western world is doing is like they're fighting for subscribers. They're trying to make the best news product they can. They're trying to make mm. the best marketing and product of that, you know, whether they, you know, have an app or put the food stuff over here or like they're really they're, There's a lot of innovation happening in selling news to people for the first time. But that's not what this campaign is. This campaign is a hearts and minds campaign that's kind of like news, it matters. It might be kind of benign if it was merely things we could all agree on, but it seems to be necessary for all of this messaging to either directly or by suggestion imply that there is some menace. You know, there's something that we need newspapers to protect us from, and that thing is fake news. And to a certain extent, that's necessary. There are some scary things out there that people are very alarmed about when it comes to misinformation. We could imagine some kind of a government campaign that's like, check the source of where you're getting information from. Be careful. We don't want a more divided society. But as a kind of public health initiative, this is an incredibly blunt instrument. You know, We're getting nothing from the government about trying to distinguish really everything from... Canada land from the rebel, from Vice,
1: from BuzzFeed. Sorry, from, from the government. This is from the government in what respect? You mean just in terms of Trudeau's tweet? In terms of the government putting um hundreds of millions of
0: dollars towards some, but not all news organizations. So by by definition, there is a government designation there as to what's what's kosher and what's trafe, what's real and what's fake. And then when they buttress that by saying here's you know credible information when they're aligned in the messaging, and then the CBC takes a list from the from the newspaper lobby group and says here are your local journalism outfits worthy of your support and i think we have to ask like what the hell is going on and what is the larger implication because i don't think you can point to any other country where they're doing this mm. you know and there's going to be some kind of information ecosystem tomorrow And Canada's is going to be its own weird Galapagos Island. It's going to be very different because what's happening here is being done in concert with government. What the government is saying, and and when I talk about the alignment of interests, it goes beyond the newspaper bailout, the marketing campaign, CBC support, and the bully pulpit of the prime minister. It goes beyond that because, of course, the newspaper lobby group and the federal government are now walking in lockstep in their efforts to uh, tax Facebook and Google. One thing I question, Jonathan, is... Would the prime minister in a week where the media actually was threatening his government, you know, in a week where, let's say, the SNC-Lavalin scandal was playing out in the Globe and Mail, where he actually lied and and lied that this was even happening uh, at the time and did what Trump does which is uh, shoot the messenger, blame the Globe and the Mail. I mean, he did it in a more polite way. But at a certain point, it became incumbent upon him not to prop up the credibility and respectability of the press, but to denigrate it. But it just so happens that right now, there's no adversarial, like like serious challenge to Justin Trudeau coming from the press.
1: It's absolutely fair to look at this and all these components and things as Indicative of all sorts of things because they are indicative of things. I don't think, I think when you're looking at the implications, that's where you're ascribing far too much momentum and even credibility to these frankly half hearted efforts. Uh, I mean, once again, it's not like Trudeau is. Even speaking at an industry event, not that there are really many events these days, like it's a fucking tweet. Well, two tweets. One in English and then again in French. The mention of fake news. Once again, I think you're reading way too much into that advertisement. I mean, fake news. Oh,
0: it's been a consistent part of of their messaging. Oh, I know.
1: But I mean, fake news is generally, obviously, generally speaking, is not a. Useful or helpful term, I and mean, it has various. Definitions well, it's obviously helpful it. to the newspaper
0: industry in Canada because they've been they've, they've been using it as as a, as a stick to scare the public with.
1: People over the age of sixty, you know, throw around the term fake news like some other people over the age of sixty subscribe to QAnon, and frankly, I'm rather it's be fake news than QAnon. But basically, it's everything falls under this one umbrella. Any sort of grievance or mistrust or piece of paranoia or feeling of instability someone might have, especially older people, there's a very good chance they may deliver it or explain it under the umbrella of fake news. It's basically either meaningless or with so many potential meanings that it is effectively meaningless. It might be meaningless, but it's powerful. Is it powerful?
0: It's a mallet with which to beat one's ideological foes. It's all just
1: different variations of Trump's usage of it. Your fake news. I don't even have to answer you. I mean, it's, it could have different potential meanings depending on the context. In the case of this, you know, poorly written ad copy, it can certainly be taken in many different ways. I choose to believe it's intended to mean... Bad actors and pseudo news. If you presume that these ads and this messaging is geared toward an older audience that may or may not be considering canceling their print subscriptions, maybe the implications aren't as dire as you think. When you tweet things like, uh, you know, newspapers have sacrificed independence in partnering with the Trudeau government, that... That's a factual statement. You can't be
0: dependent on the Trudeau government and still call yourself an independent...
1: Press. What does partnering mean in that sense? And what way have newspapers partnered with the Trudeau government? They've run a multi-year
0: campaign, uh, lobbying and pressuring the government in, uh, to establish a ongoing subsidy. Um, they've also partnered with them in terms of, uh, basically encouraging them to go shake down Google and Facebook for an ongoing tax on, on those services for the benefit of, of the newspapers. In doing so, they're forcing the government to make determinations as to who is media and who is not media. Um, they also are, are creating a situation whereby they'll, they'll have to kind of renew, uh, the government's commitment in succeeding generations of, of you know, as, as new governments emerge, they'll have to kind of like the same way the CBC has to go back to each government and make sure that the commitment is still there, they've put themselves in a vulnerable independent position whereby as a as a point of fact, they now have skin in the game as to whether or not Trudeau gets reelected or not. I don't think that on a rank and file reporter by reporter uh, basis, people are making determinations about what quotes to include or what angle to take based on that. But you can't get around the fact that uh, right now, you know, like Aaron O'Toole has said, he'll gut the CBC. He probably wouldn't keep the newspaper subsidy going. So they basically have to um, blind themselves. A political reporter in Canada has to pretend that they don't know what they know, which is that their job is more safe with Trudeau than without.
1: By, by the same logic, are we dependent on the Trudeau government standing because we received the Canada Emergency Wage, wage subsidy and there was no guarantee that uh, a subsequent government or a different government would support that?
0: Yes. Yes, that's a complicating factor for sure. I mean, the distinction for me, and maybe it's one without a difference, is that uh, the wage subsidy is one that any employer took just by virtue of being an employer. And I didn't have mm-hmm. to go hat in hand to the government or to some government appointed committee and say, please, sir, um, mm-hmm. designate me a, a real news organization. I did, And that that's, that was the line in the sand, as you know, that I would not put mm-hmm. Canada Land through. I would not subject Canada Land mm-hmm. to uh, a, a rejection or approval from the government that we have to cover. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, would prefer to, uh, to not be subsidized in any way, shape or form, but you know, a decision was made, mm-hmm. uh, that the, you know, complicates the ideological purity of my stance, but, uh, was, was, uh, you know, the, the decision that I felt I had to make to keep everybody's job intact. But yeah, I, I think, I think that's a fair, that's a fair point to bring up. <sighs> this episode is brought to you by the center for addiction and mental health. Cam H heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca canadaland Canada land to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. With your Douglas purchase today, visit Douglas.ca slash Canada land to claim this offer. Jonathan Goldsby, if anyone knows, if if anyone knows that we note things duly, Mm -hmm.
1: it's you. What do you have? Uh, I'd like to duly note a piece that Shannon Cardy wrote for us that we published last week that looks at The conditions that were placed on the journalist Carl Dockstatter, who's uh, from One Dish, One Mike and has contributed to Candleland, he was arrested and charged with uh, mischief and for failing to obey a court order in connection with his reporting on 1492 Land Back Lane, which is a Six Nations protest site and encampment at a site of a proposed housing development in southwest Ontario or southern Ontario or somewhere, somewhere thereabouts. The conditions, as have been reported, included that he not go back to the site even to report, that he not have any contact with the developer or uh, anyone connected to that site, and that he not take part in any unlawful protests or unlawful demonstrations, whatever that may mean in the context. Now, that's all shitty enough, and it's certainly been looked at as like, well, that's fucked up that they would do this to anyone, and certainly to a journalist, and certainly to an indigenous journalist uh, reporting on an indigenous land dispute, but what Shannon brought to my attention what he wrote about is that the way it would the way it would generally work is that you'd be take you know someone would be arrested, kept overnight in jail, taken before a judge for a bail hearing. The judge then you know decides on what conditions are or not you know the crown then asks for conditions. The judge makes a decision and releases the person you know with a prom- with certain conditions maybe and then a promise with promising to appear at a future court date. In order to divert people from the court system and the prison system, at least at that stage, the federal government has understandably made some changes to encourage the skipping of that step so that, you know, just have why keep someone in jail overnight? We could just have them sign a form prompting them to show up in court. The issue with, it, with this is that, as one of the lawyers quoted in the story explains, when police get to tell people what to do, they really like to tell people what to do. And so these kinds of conditions that would most conventionally be handed out by a judge or imposed by a judge are now being decided on almost unilaterally by police, who basically present a form to a person and either they sign it and agree to whatever the police want, or they don't sign it and potentially spend some time in jail overnight or longer. In the case of Carl, these are conditions that definitely seem excessive, definitely seem outside the scope of the law. And they're conditions that if you, you know, look at what these forms say, they're intended to ensure the safety of the victims and or witnesses to particular crimes. That is to say, it's like, you know, if it's a domestic domestic assault case, stay away from from the person you hurt. Don't threaten any of the witnesses, things like that. And in this case, It's all the way the police have framed his conditions and the sections of law under which they've imposed them essentially makes it seem like this housing development itself, this construction site, is the victim. And that is really effed up. And it is such a clear way, it is such a clear example of how property rights are weighed against civil liberties. Duly noted.
0: I want to duly note uh, an update to a story uh, from out east over in Digby, uh, Nova Scotia. Listeners will remember, um, I talked to Trina Mm -hmm. Roach before about this um, moderate livelihood uh, lobster fishery where Mi'kmaq fishermen have have actually had the right for many years to go out and earn a living. Um, uh, A moderate living is actually how it's defined, uh, fishing for lobster, Um, but have been just waiting for that to be ratified and and formalized. And finally, they said, fuck it, we're just going to do it. Mm -hmm. And there's been opposition from the local grand scale commercial. Lobster fishery Where they've been Intimidating the customers Intimidating the Mi'kmaq uh, mm. Fishermen um, People r- recall the story The update Is that they burned a boat did they burned a Mi'kmaq boat? They did Oh uh, shit Yeah uh, CBC and others have reported That a Mi'kmaq fishing vessel Damaged in suspicious fire o- o- Overnight uh, this week um, It was set ablaze <sighs> It was uh, not the boat that this particular fisherman uh, uses in the uh, in this part of the season. He's still able to go out, but it's a boat worth you know uh, forty thousand dollars to him. And there's an escalation of these tensions. This is uh, you know uh, I, I think very clearly uh, linked to this conflict, and um, I don't think Oof. people should take their eyes off of it. So that's what I wanted to point out today.
1: Yeah, thank you for thank you for drawing my attention to that. One of these things that emit so many fucking things going on everywhere all the time. Yeah, I, I fear I would have missed that. Nerded. Yesterday,
0: the associate medical officer of health said she recommended people stick only to their immediate family for Thanksgiving dinner. You just a few minutes
1: ago said uh, stick to the limit of 10 people. That is mixed messaging, is it not? Oh, and, no. and it's confusing people out there. So, which one is it? Because, hmm. you know, I, I, I live in a small home with under 10, but. Uh, you're saying I
0: could have ten. If you play, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Cynthia, but if you day, only the people I live with. So if you you play it back, I said stick within your household, your your household. That that's what I said. So uh, stick w- within ten people. You know, what we're asking, try to say uh, stay within the, the family. If you're going over and I understand there's a lot of single people out there, if they have a family they're, they're close to, please wear a mask, keep social distance. So that was about as clear as mud. Uh, Doug Ford telling everybody what they should be doing on Thanksgiving um, and then misremembering his own advice. And, uh, and then James Waddy of the CBC uh, pointing out that fact with a nifty little rewind feature that uh, would be nice to have, as you pointed out. Oh my out.
1: God, I want, I want to have whatever that program is that lets him instantly <laughs> clip pre- live press conferences and then add a special rewind effect. But one of the remarkable, like, there, you know, there's endless ways to analyze COVID and the government responses to it. But one of the things I've been really fascinated by in the past, it's really picked up in the past week or so, is the way that people have been looking at the opacity of or of the government messaging in Ontario. You know, a, a term that, uh, I mean, it's been used before in news, in, you know, in discussing the news and discussing all sorts of things. And we regrettably first heard it last week, you know, in the coverage of the U.S. election debate was uh, a bias towards coherence, that the news media and journalists almost necessarily have a bias towards coherence and that if you're writing an article or packaging a news cli- a news story or regardless of the medium chances are if you're taking a quote you're going to take a quote that at least by itself sounds coherent and makes enough sense it says something but when you look at these things when you often when you look at these same lines or just look at these answers that politicians will give to straightforward questions in their entirety it's really remarkable. And so, which is once again, not a new thing, but, but, but in the past week, particularly, we make them coherent when they're incoherent. Exactly. And in the past week in particular, and what the reason why we're talking about this is that people have been clipping those videos of Doug Ford and other public officials, and even transcribing their full responses so that you can see what they're saying really, they're, Either they're saying everything at once or they're saying nothing at all, and probably everything and nothing at the same time. So yesterday, uh, the anchor at CTV News Ottawa asked a question in the press conference. It wasn't the most straightforward question, but basically he said, you know, what do you say to people who are just flat out confused and they don't know what to do and they're trying to do the right thing and they're very, very worried about where Ontario is going um, in terms of, you know... Basic in terms of like what is allowed, what isn't allowed, what contact should people have with other people, what contact should they not have. And Doug Ford, you know, said he was being pretty clear and offering a pretty clear and direct answer. If you transcribe it, it's 400 words and with a bunch of tangents that. Basically contradicts itself and wraps itself inside out several times over and is one thing if you hear him say it, but I'm going to read it until Jesse interrupts me to tell me to stop. Well, I'm being very frank. I'm hearing the total opposite. We're flattening the curve, we're putting the protocols in, and I'm just going to compare restaurants to going over and seeing your loved ones. And this is going to be about as clear as I can for, be for Thanksgiving. You know what we're asking? Try to stay within the family. If you're going over, and I understand there's a lot of single people out there, if they have family or they're close to, please wear a mask, keep social distance. And regarding restaurants, that's like apples and bananas. When you go into a restaurant, they're taking everyone's name. You have six at a table, they have dividers, they have protocols in place, and the rest of the people in the restaurant you don't know. And that's the difference. At a family, you know the people. Please, it's very simple. There's rules and there's guidelines. The rules are very clear. 10 indoors, 25 outdoors. I would really, really discourage people from having 25 people, even if it's outdoors. Stick within 10 people. And folks, we went through this so so much together, we can get through this. This is going to make or break it this Thanksgiving. We see the numbers slowly flattening. They still are high, but I've seen it decline yesterday. The testing is up to 42,000, a record, and I don't know how Ontario Health CEO Matt Anderson does it. I know I've said he's a champion, but he is a champion. He's moving forward with a record number. Number. We're going to increase the numbers, even with the struggles that we've had with getting the lab technicians and getting the reagent. But he's pulled a rabbit out of his hat somehow. This The guy's unbelievable. So he's going to continue doing that, and we'll get through this. And Thanksgiving is going to make it or break it. Just please hang in there. You know I have a big family. And I told my wife, Carly. I said, you know, and she knows we have no more than 10. And simple as that. And that's what we're going to obey by as well. And when it comes to having everyone over, your aunts and uncles, you know, hang off on the hugging and the kissing and everything else. I just want to make through it the Thanksgiving year. But we see a little bit of the flattening right now, but we need to bring the numbers down still. So that's about as clear as I can be on that. So there shouldn't be any confusion. <laughs> I, I I think I see what you're getting
0: at, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of room for confusion in that. Um, and we would hope for a lot more clarity from a politician, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm going to pivot here. I'm going to pivot here. Uh, I, I think I actually need to challenge your premise to some extent. Sure. I, I, I think it's... It reminds me of the Sarah Palin, um, you know, uh, candidacy when uh, she was a laughingstock and (laughs) the way that she spoke was seized upon and uh, not just by Tina Fey, but uh, but everybody was making fun of her. And uh, I can't remember who it was, but the point was made like you fucking snobs. Real people don't talk in the super artificial and, mm-hmm. you know, completely pre-written way and careful language and, the, and, you know, lawyered and gone through PR and messaging that many politicians do. And uh, Sarah Palin connects with people who have no trouble figuring out what she's trying to say. And, and, you know, I, in a sense, there's a premonition there of everything awful that happened after that, what, what how real people talk mm-hmm. and the way that real people communicate and get themselves across. But I felt this often with Trump where The establishment media and comics and critics, you can have a field day making fun of the way that this guy expresses himself, but he is a masterful communicator and the people who he's speaking to know exactly what he means. And we're doing no one any favors by pretending that that's not true, by pretending that he's just some doofus idiot. These people are improvisatory. Their whole power, I think, derives from the fact that they are not like writing down sentences saying like, let's stick to our message. What I say is very important. I'm an elected official. I have a lot of power. People read into my words. I don't want to make mistakes. Let me just stick to the script. Um, But they are... So so you're going to get mistakes
1: and misstatements, but there is meaning within that. There's meaning within that, but I mean, mean, yes, like, everything you're saying is absolutely true and fair as Part of a discussion of political communication. But I think that is precisely the problem here, is it's very well established fact in all kinds of medical and public health literature that it is crucial In the context of a public health crisis, to have clear and consistent messaging, ideally stuff that does not come from politicians or in which politicians don't take the lead so that you're not getting into these things as political communications. Yeah, this is fine. But this is precisely why there should be clear, consistent direction, because in a public health crisis, that is crucial. If he wants to answer to give a debate answer like this and he does like fine. Good. That's that's what he does. That's how he connects with people. That's cool, but in this this is life or death yeah. stuff.
0: I, I I agree with you here. I just look, uh, you know, uh, you are a uh, person who, as a journalist, is very meticulous with your words. You're also quite expansive with your words, and the need for concision and and summary. Uh, well, I I don't know. Doug Ford wasn't exactly concise there. No, it's 400 words. I think that 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 it, it, we can be faulted as much as we can be praised for trying to derive meaning. It is a journalist's job to listen to a a like a. a a word salad like Doug Ford uh, emitted there, and try to figure out what the hell is he talking about. And I can kind of figure out what he's talking. about. He's like, "Look, the rules are you can have twenty-five people outdoors, but I don't recommend it." Uh, you know, he contradicted himself with the ten-person thing because he seemed to be confused as to whether or not that's members of your family or a ten-person bubble, and um, misremembered that, that he had yep. that he was you know contradicting himself on that. Um, and you know, Teresa
1: Tam can be, can be like like her communications being terrible. I, yeah, know I, I, public health officials have can often have this the same like yeah. They've not been consistently great either. I mean, this, this is not unique, like all kinds of people can be poor communicators. I yeah. think I should be clear on that. But if you're going to take the lead on these things and you're going to try to be the face of it and the figurehead, whether you're a public health official or a politician, you should have your act together and not have to give contradictory answers. I, I think you brought an interesting media critique in this
0: idea of, um, you know, uh, a, a, basically a bias towards things making sense, mm-hmm. which, you know, on the flip side of that is like like we're trying to find the meaning. I, yeah. I, I was a bit more... Um, Compelled by a different bias the media has Um, and it it is a Doug Ford issue to, you know, and apologies Mm -hmm. to the rest of the country right now, but we have a bias towards storytelling. We have a bias towards building up characters and narrative and uh, that bias is understood by political operators. So when Doug Ford uh, earlier in the pandemic releases this uh, like a cheesecake video, I know that sounds disgusting, a Doug Ford cheesecake video. It was literally Doug Ford making cheesecake uh, cooking with Doug with his uh, uh, famous cheesecake recipe, which I can tell you it was a very basic, like fucking Betty Crocker it's, cheesecake yeah, recipe. There's nothing uh, special about that cheesecake. Uh, it was reported as news by CTV, um Toronto Star had a story about it where they're like, oh, let's recreate his cheesecake. It was a bit salty, the story, not the cheesecake. Mm. But that, that that was news. That Doug Ford, and it was consistent with Doug Ford building himself up as a character, like meet the kinder, gentler Doug Ford who has found his inner leader, who is not as combative, mm-hmm. who has risen to the occasion, who's found a way to be classy and human under the pandemic. And really, who would have thunk it? he's the leader that Ontario needs and we're handling this really well? That was a narrative that pretty much got like like across the spectrum buy-in from, it wasn't the public who were clamoring for that. It was the media, like, like not just selling that to the public, but taking it from Ford and selling it to the public. And lo and behold, here we are where like as a news consumer, I have really one question for this government, which is why do we not have rapid testing? You had months to prepare for this and all the money in the world. We know that that's how things can be dealt with. We we know from the rest of the world that that's the best tool we have to avoid a full societal shutdown. And in terms of accountability journalism, that's all I want, journalists. I want clarity on public health uh, uh, advice and rules. I want to know what's the advice, what are the rules? I don't want any confusion about that. He's fucked that up. And I want to know what's going on with rapid testing. When are we going to get it? Why don't we have it yet? I don't need to see his cheesecake recipe. So this this bias we have towards... Warm and fuzzy stories and heroes is the the bias that I I find most concerning.
1: The Star just today had a story or ran online yesterday. I think it was in today's paper. I'm not going to roll – quote, I'm not going to roll back. Doug Ford claims COVID-19 has changed his partisan outlook. The word claim – I appreciate the use of the word claims in the headline – but, I mean, so this is reporting an event, an event, at a Zoom event for Ryerson University, in which he basically claims to be a kinder, gentler politician who's evolved. Uh, he's quoted as saying, this is the way I'm going to be. I'm going to be this way moving forward. I'm not going to roll back, the premier said, pointing to his close working relationship with Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, as well as other premiers and municipal leaders. And it's true, certainly, that he's generally speaking, less of a pugilistic asshole than he had been previously. But it also conveniently ignores the fact that like five hours before that Ryerson event, he was back to being a pugilistic asshole in the legislature. The leader of the opposition, now Andrea Horvath, asked him, you know, why are you so reluctant to impose these measures that uh, public health agencies in Toronto and Ottawa are begging for? He basically would go back to, you know, yelling at like, have you ever run a business? Have you ever run a business? Have the- you ever had to meet a payroll? Have uh, you uh, ever had to meet a payroll? You know, the answer is no, because you been you've on been the on public the public dole for the last 20 years, years down here. That's the reason. <laughs> I mean, he's... Been a politician the past seven or ten years. Like, it's just like he hasn't changed. No
0: one is more aware of this than, than the reporters who cover him day in and day out. So why exactly. do we why do so, we run with that
1: narrative? I'm more yeah, I'm just more surprised that, that was the the head that was how that, that's that's that particular story was framed, because it does seem to still be hoping against hope that there is some meaningful evolution. Whereas I mean it's pretty clear that it's been incremental at best. Just for the record, and the public health advice is going to be a bit different everywhere, but Toronto Public Health is urging residents to limit their Thanksgiving celebrations to quote, only the people you live with in the same household, under the same roof. And for those who live alone, they say, the safest option is to join others virtually. Uh, That's consistent with the advice being given out by the city of Ottawa as well. I just wanted to clarify that.
0: that is our shortcuts for today. Jonathan, thank you.
1: Thank you. You can
0: email me uh, about it at jesse at CanadaLandShow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jonathan, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Goldspeed, or I guess on and around CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of our podcasts, just click on the link in your show notes or go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join. It'll just take a second. That's how we do this.